0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little show here, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Oak Island to learn more. Alright, before we begin this week's uh, podcast, I just want to thank Ben for joining our Patreon this week. Uh, don't forget, Ben, as a patron, you can come to our Patreon page uh, and join us for a live discussion, little chat there, uh, during the airing of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Uh, I've also been using the post section of the Patreon page as sort of my new Oak Island blog. been posting some of my old research, some of my old scripts, things like that, um, and I'm going to continue to do that for the foreseeable future. Um, So, you know, all the kind of the history of the treasure hunt that I've been gathering over the years. Again, thank you, Ben. It is great to have you as part of the Diggin' Oak Island family. Also, I want to mention something else here. Last week, I gave out my Venmo for a listener who asked to be able to donate to the show without using the Patreon. And I got a couple of donations over there. I was honestly just stunned and humbled, really. Uh, So I want to take a second to thank uh, Chris for his donation, which was accompanied by a hilarious gift, by the way, um, as well as Jen from my home state of New Jersey for her donation as well. And also, um, there was another unbelievably generous donation from a fan of the show who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, But I hope you're listening. I cannot thank you enough. But I want to thank all of you. Uh, You don't know how much this means to me and my family. I'm truly overwhelmed by the support, and it really does push me to kind of do the best Oak Island podcast out there that I can possibly do. Thank you all so much. If you would like to donate via Venmo, you certainly can. Uh, The thing is, I don't have one set up for the show. I have an account that I use for my other job, which is a musician. I've sold CDs and things like that on there, so if you want to, um, you can... Find me on Venmo at Dave McBride Music. So there you go. Now, you guys who donated over there, uh, you may not be patrons, but you are certainly members of the Diggin Island family in my eyes. Thank you so much. Uh, and if you would like to uh, help out the show and not through a donation, please, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five star rating and review. For some reason, I don't quite understand. That goes a long way to getting new listeners to the podcast, and that always that always is a good thing. All right, let's get to this week's comments and questions from you guys. Um, I think we should start with a listener named Seth, who asked, Happy Tuesday, Dave. Maybe I wasn't paying attention, but since when was this season set to only run 15 episodes? There's been no drawn-out, multi-week teasing of an impending season finale. Seems abrupt and odd. Or again, maybe I wasn't paying attention. Could it be that we're going to get a cliffhanger? One will have to subscribe to an upcoming History Channel <laughs> streaming service to see conclude. Consider my, tim- my timbers shivered, Seth. All right, and let me say, Seth, you weren't the only one who I saw weren't questioning this, um, and Seth also sent along an article from some online magazine um, that also called this week's episode the season finale. Well, by the time this podcast posts and you guys are... Um, are listening to me here, I think you'll already know that this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island was indeed not the season finale. The confusion most likely stems from the fact that there is no new episode next week because the History Channel is airing this multi-part special on Abraham Lincoln for President's Week. This kind of confusion has happened before, believe me. This is not the first time uh, that people have thought this because the scheduling that History Channel puts out on your TVs and stuff tends to be a little uh, nonspecific. But it does give me a chance to mention something that we can maybe do next week here on the podcast. I think instead of taking the week off... Uh, Maybe we should do a sort of mid-season sort of listener comment show, maybe part report card, part questions, that kind of thing. Send in any questions about the island you might have, especially any comments on what we've seen these past 15 episodes, and also maybe how you think this season might end. And let me put another little subject in there for you guys to stir up some conversation. I had this talk with my father this week. It was a really interesting conversation. He's also a big fan of The Curse of Oak Island. has been watching since the first episode. And what we talked about was as we kind of approach this 10th season here, I think we all have to start thinking about how the show is going to end when it finally does. Now, what do you guys think? How does the History Channel bring this all to an end? Will they find a treasure? If not, then What? Get your predictions in now. Send them to dig in Oak Island at gmail.com. We'll discuss them on next week's podcast. Uh, thank you, Seth, for your email. Uh, you can warm up your timber, so to speak, as we absolutely will have more episodes coming this season. We just have to wait a couple weeks. That's all. All right, let's go now to Tom who writes, they we're making a big deal about the bag. Bail seal was possibly stamped with a treasury of England insignia, implying that means it was on a treasure to me just means that the item it was affixed to was a taxable item, and the tax was paid. And there are, were, taxes on many mundane items. The most significant thing about it is the age, Tom. Tom, thank you so much for the email. I think I mentioned last week, but it bears repeating here. It was Dr. Brousseau who pointed or kind of floated the possibility that the initials we were seeing on the bail seal were a T and an E, and perhaps that could stand for Treasury of England. Uh, two things. One, I'm not sure we can say with absolute certainty that these initials we see here are indeed, you know, completely and totally a T and an E. It was still pretty unclear to me, even though we've uh, cleaned it up a bit here. Although those two letters, T and E, certainly seemed like a very good possibility and, 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 a, and a reasonable one for sure. And the other thing to mention, I think, is this is by no means... Um, we put it like this. This is by no means a criticism of, doc- of the doctor, but Dr. Brousseau is a chemist. You know, She's not an archaeologist or a historian, and believe me, she knows that perfectly well. So my feeling is she wasn't saying she thought this was the symbol of the treasury of England, but it could be, I guess. And for a historian or a researcher like Charles or Doug, for example, maybe it should be time they kind of track that down and see. That was kind of how I read it. Almost like the editing made it seem that that this is what she thought it was but if you actually kind of go back and watch it again, she's just sort of throwing out an example and my guess is they edited out the 15 other T and Es she thought it could be you know but again just because this is what she was doing it doesn't stop the editors from uh, you know from focusing on it like it was a fact like now she mentioned this so it must be the Treasury of England. And and I'll also, let me tell you this, uh, I said this last week as well, Um, I spent some time, not that much time, I will happily admit, trying to track down this symbol, or for that matter, any symbol from the Treasury of England that might be affixed to a bail seal, and that might look a little bit something like what we see here, but I didn't have any luck. So um, if you guys were able to do so, please send that information along, Island at gmail.com. And Tom, I do agree, if by some chance this speculation that this was a stamp originating with the English Treasury, uh, if this turns out to indeed be the case, then that is not evidence of a buried treasure, not at all. But most likely just an indication that the taxes on whatever this bail seal was used to, um, to seal was indeed paid. That's really it. But as I also said last week, this is still a great find in my mind. What is it doing here between the possible age and what it was used for? The known history of Oak Island would indicate that this is kind of out of place. It really was fascinating for me, for sure. Um, But uh, that fascination is going to take a little bit of a turn with our next email. Thank you so much, Tom. And while we're on the subject of the bale seal, let's go to John, who writes, Hi, Dave. When the bale seal was first discovered, I immediately thought coconut core. Core was bailed like hay, John. And I still believe it is, John. Um, without turning this into a coconut farming podcast, a subject I have absolutely zero qualifications to talk about, let me just say that coconut core has and has always had a lot of agricultural applications, even to this day. So here is the problem with, with what rises from your theory that this was a bale for coconut core. Let's say this was indeed from a bale of essentially what is coconut fibers being transported centuries ago on a ship sailing off the coast of Nova Scotia. A ship that got caught in a storm and eventually sank, its contents either sinking with it or breaking apart as they normally do, and washing ashore on a nearby island. That would certainly explain not only why the seal would be found here on Oak Island, but... More intriguingly, or I should say more depressingly, it might also explain why coconut fibers would be found on the beach and in great quantities. Can all that ju- all that coconut fiber there that has caused so much speculation really just be the result of a shipwreck and these bales and their contents washing ashore on Oak Island? Uh, might be worth exploring. <laughs> That's a great spot, my friend. That's certainly a better explanation than, than booby trap flood tunnels. We're going to get to that in a second, too. Uh, but let's go now to Jake in Kansas, who writes, Hello, I am uh, very new to your podcast. I enjoy hearing all the different perspectives from other viewers of the show and yours as well. I've been watching the TV show for several seasons, and it seems like some, if not most, of anything actually worth discovering comes from metal-detecting expert Gary Drayton. My question is, why do you think you have they have not expanded the metal-detecting approach? Meaning, why not have a big team of metal-detecting experts combing the island da- daily? Gary can only cover so much ground by himself, but if you had 20 Garys or more, you could cover a lot more area and find a lot more potentially important artifacts. Hope that question makes sense. Keep up the awesome podcast. Thank you, Jake from Kansas. Jake, I think... Uh, What might answer this is what we don't see on the show, right? Does that make any sense? I mean, uh, I'm not sure Gary has any help, any off camera metal detecting minions, but he certainly does a lot more work than we actually get to see on the show. Just take a look at the work done in lot four and even some of the scenes on lot 32, I think. When you see these scenes, take a look in the background, and you could see there are. Dozens of these little orange flags sticking up all over the ground. These are targets, metal detector hits, that Gary, or I guess whoever, um, I mean, I assume it's Gary, but uh, you never really know. These are hits he found off camera that have not been dug up yet, either due to their time constraints or also permitting issues, which I know are certainly a factor in some of this. So I think Jake, Gary has it pretty well covered and much of the island, at least in the areas of interest. Um, they've already kind of been detected by Gary, I think. We just don't see it all, you know. We only get to see when he finds stuff. I mean, he is on that island every summer for, I think, months. There must be thousands of hours of footage of him metal detecting and not finding anything. Uh, not to mention the thousands of hours he probably puts in when there are no cameras with him. And another thing, I, I which is the reason why they do the the flag thing. He takes his time and he does it, and he does it kind of on his own. And he puts these hits in, and then we go back with the team, with the with the uh, camera team, and we pick the flags up and we detect again, and we kind of recreate the scene, but we still haven't dug it out yet. So then they film that, and then they can edit that. So if they puts down twenty flags and nineteen of them are nothing but bottle tops. Then, you know, we don't see that stuff. I hope I'm kind of making sense. Another thing here, I, I think it I think the reason it seems sometimes that Gary is the only one who ever finds anything is because let's face it, he's the only one really looking outside the money pit or the swamp, right? The Laginas have always put their focus on big projects, the money pit, the swamp, and for a few seasons, the Smith's Cove, right? But outside of those big operations, those big projects. The only one that looks like they're really spending time searching in other areas of the island is Gary. I guess that's kind of a long-winded say, way of saying that I think Gary has it covered. My guess is Gary would say the same thing. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. Great email. Keep them coming. All right, let's go now to a friend we haven't heard from in a while. Here is Dan who writes, Hi, Dave. I haven't seen a, sent an email in a while. I am still a faithful listener, though. Never missed a podcast from the first seagull to the last. Anyway, my question is about Oak Island Treasure Act. There have been several amended acts, but in all, Clause 8 always deals with reporting treasure found. I've copied and pasted it here, and this is what the act says. When a person, whether or not the holder of a license issued under this act, discovers or recovers any treasure on Oak Island, that person shall immediately make a report in writing verified upon oath to the minister setting out, full particulars of A, the treasure discovered or recovered, B, the location of the discovery, and C, the place at which the treasure may be inspected by the minister or by some person on the minister's behalf. So my question is, do you know if Canada has a Freedom of Information Act like the USA? Maybe someone you know or a listener could go down to the courthouse and do an FOI and see if any fines have been reported. That would certainly answer the skeptics who say they already found something. Also, it would let us know if they did find anything this season, last year. Anyway, just a thought, Dan. Uh, Dan, I'm not a lawyer, um, but my guess is that if there is something in in Canada equivalent to the Freedom of Information Act, that one would probably have to be a Canadian in order to get access to such information. And alas, I am not a Canadian. But I know we do have some listeners here who are. Do we have any volunteers? Who, <laughs> Dan, I mean, your logic is pretty tight, right? So much so. It's, it's such good logic so that I, I think I would kind of be stunned if someone else hadn't thought of this already and then just came up empty, which is the reason why we haven't heard anything. But that shouldn't stop us from trying, right? So if there are any Canadian listeners out there who want to do some digging, pun very much intended, uh, you know where to uh, send those results. Should you find anything out with your uh, search through the government, dig Island at gmail.com. And Dan, let me also just add this. I am not a believer in these uh, conspiracy and skeptical people who think they have found something and they're just holding it for the uh, purpose of extending the show. Uh, I, I think that is a nonsensical idea. And the biggest reason is because doing so would be almost impossible. And I've said this so many times, but these kind of conspiracies like this always fall apart with me when one has to consider how many people would have to be in on this. And unless whoever found this also wants to essentially break the law, we're now also assuming that this person, whether it be the Laginas, are risking you know, breaking this act and therefore (laughs) breaking the law in the minds of the local government. But also, if they didn't and they did report it, for some reason, the government has to be in on this conspiracy, too, including the person who inspected it, the person who took the call, the person who filled out the paperwork, the person who entered the paperwork into the computer and on and on and on and on. And it just that kind of stuff just falls apart. So I, I, I just don't kind of believe in that stuff. Anyway, great, great, great email, Dan. Uh, I hope somebody actually goes and tries to do that. And I hope all is well with you. It's great to hear, you, hear from you again. All right. We kind of mentioned a little bit of this before. And I, I threw these next two emails in there just to sort of let your uh, brain stew on this coconut fiber thing. So let's finish up with Robert in Florida who writes, I have to just make a couple of comments about the flood tunnel idea water is my business. I've dealt with water for over 30 years now, and the whole flood tunnel thing really just blows my mind. Given the level at which they claim to have run into it, it leaves me speculating how this would be possible. Let's consider the, the first the notion that the tunnel was hit at 150 feet down. Please correct me if I'm mistaken. Robert, I think it's closer to 100, but at least the initial flooding encountered when the first digs of the money pit were done were around that level. Anyway, I don't think that makes... Too big a difference, and he continues. Uh, That would create water pressure of approximately 60 PSI at the location of its intersection with the money pit. Now, how are they going to firstly stop the water from uh, leaking through the shaft wall and cannot let so much as a drip get through because a drip leads to two, that leads to four, and after a short amount of time, the water would blow out a deluge of mud and rocks, which has happened, by the way. Go into your kitchen. Stick your hand over your faucet and hold the water back. Your typical household pressure is 30 to 35 PSI. Now double that and tell me how they're going to control a whole of water pressure this great. Understand water doesn't care if it's in a straight line or curved or whatever. The pressure remains the same. The flow rate will change, but the amount of pressure remains unchanged. Water is like earth sandpaper. It's very destructive and will always find a way to get through and leak. And once it drips, once a drip starts, it grows steadily. We all know about the Grand Canyon. Yes, maybe a little extreme, but let's consider the river running through. It is not very deep and the pressure of that water is nothing compared to the depths we're talking about here in Oak Island. Yes, they have dealt with boats and leaks, but these ships sit pretty shallow in the water and always leak. So that's issue number one. Now let's consider construction. Obviously, you can't start at the ocean. Digging a wet water-filled tunnel, impossible. So let's start the dig from the money pit. Which guy is willing to give his life to do the last 10 feet? Where you don't know when you're going to hit water. Is this the bones found in the money pit? Of course it was. That means the tunnel flooded before they got the tunnel sealed and waterproofed. The dig would have to start at the money pit Since trying to start from the beach and land at the pit is unthinkably difficult, if not next to impossible, they would also have to provide bellows to pump air in for the tunnel builders and survive each day. So these problems are not totally unimaginable, but will require more than just getting in and digging. Lots of talk about the difficulty of digging the money pit, but everything given digging flood tunnels makes the money pit dig a piece of cake. So to me, the whole flood tunnel idea just doesn't hold water, excuse the pun. What do you think, Robert, in Naples, Florida? Well, <laughs> Robert, you kind of nailed it there. I, I, and now the thing is, for a long time, I was fairly convinced that something happened at Smith's Cove, something really big, right? And literally until this very podcast, I had not heard many great explanations as to what could have caused this something, if not human activity. So I think is a good background What we can do here uh, is go back to Randall Sullivan's book, uh, The Curse of Oak Island, the story of the world's longest treasure hunt, um, and how he describes the discovery of what happened on Smith's Cove. He writes, quote, and this is referring to the first company, I think the Truro company, who uh, found there some sort of connection with Smith's Cove. He writes, the company noticed almost immediately that all of the large stones had been removed from a considerable expanse of the beach. Then, when high tide began to ebb, the men observed that this section of the beach gulched forth water like a sponge being squeezed, as McCulley described it. The men stared at the water bubbling up through the surface and realized this couldn't be happening naturally. They began to shovel away the sand and stones. At a depth of three feet, the Truro crew found a two-inch thick layer of brown stringing material they believed correctly to be coconut fiber. Below that was a thick layer of decayed eelgrass or kelp There was and still is some debate as to which. Tons of coconut fiber and most likely eelgrass were pulled away and piled in heaps all along the shoreline until the workers revealed a compact and remarkably clean mass of beach rocks protected from the sand and gravel on the surface of the beach by a six-inch thick mat of coconut fiber and eelgrass. The men of the Truro Company could only guess how many tons of sand and clay had been removed from the surface of the beach to make room for both the filter and the rocks beneath, but it had to be 100,000 pounds at least. That work had gone into this, the work that had gone into this was stupefying to contemplate because what had been created was a giant insulating sponge spread out for a length of 145 feet along the shoreline between the high and low tide marks. So because of that, right, and because of things like that that I've read over the years... I really did think that something happened here. But Robert, you and our listener John from before are starting to make me question all of that now. Certainly if something crazy did happen here, that something certainly might not be <laughs> a booby trap flood tunnel system or anything like that for the reasons you, you point out. As I mentioned earlier, this bail seal that we're talking about now makes me think that Possibly the coconut fiber could have been from shipwreck and not specifically brought here for this flooding system. I mean, that's what this bail seal might indicate to me. And maybe it really is possible that we've all been just misreading this evidence for all of these centuries, myself included, and that this company who originally did this work, found this stuff, wasn't sure really what it could be here, how this could have been done. And then like many a treasure hunter and many, a you know, somebody doing work like this, filled in the blanks with their own imagination. Unfortunately, I think that idea is very possible because really I have always felt like you, Robert, that the idea of digging this booby trap, at least in the way these theories suggested, really put this, just like Randall Sullivan says, really put this whole thing, this whole work done here to a new level that just seemed incredibly difficult to comprehend. Now, having said that, years ago, I interviewed author and historian Tony McMahon, who's an expert on the Knights Templar. And I asked him if these things that we're talking about in Oak Island, like the money pit and the flood tunnel system, could have been done by the Knights Templar. And he said something like, well, on their lunch break, really, that the Templars have done far greater and more dangerous projects than this. But despite that, The sticking point with me has always been this idea that the booby trap system, it just seems like such an incredibly difficult task, and I just don't understand the point of it. And your email, Robert, really solidifies that for me. Now, take your email and add to that this bail seal, and now I'm questioning one of the parts of this whole mystery that I always hung my hat on as a real indicator of something mysterious on Oak Island. I'm not kidding, guys. This is all happening right now in real time as I'm going through this. My Smith's Cove bubble is bursting as I think more and more about this. Put it this way. We've always said, why would you find this coconut fiber in mass quantities here? How could that possibly be? Coconuts don't grow around here. Somebody had to put it here. Well, did somebody have to put it here? Or could this just be a result of an accident? And if a ship sinks carrying one of these bales the seal breaks washes up on the island so does the coconut <laughs> it washes up on the island and then over years and years as you know as beach erosion and stuff it kind of beds itself in under the under the rocks and all that kind of stuff it's all very explainable let me step back a bit and go back to robert's email i think at least as far as the flood tunnels are now concerned i think how i feel adding this bail seal thing is that i need proof that such a thing actually exists meaning i need proof that the water and the flooding that we've seen in the money pit for these 225 years is indeed not natural because you know there's always been a lot of experts who have always said sure that 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 water could be very natural and as i always tell you guys you can't ignore likely explanations in favor of the fantastical just because the fantastical sounds fantastic. That's not how you solve a mystery, plain and simple. All right, I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta take a break here and kind of let my mind uh, relax a little bit. <laughs> That's all for the emails this week. And boy, those are some great emails. Thank you everyone for writing in. And if you would like to have a question answered or a comment discussed on a future podcast, just send them along to digginoakisland at gmail.com. It's time to talk about Season 9, Episode 14 of The Curse of Oak Island called Eyes and Boot in the Ground. The reason for that punterific name will be revealed in our next segment, so stay tuned for that. But let's start our discussion by talking about that bail or bag seal again that we saw last week and that we just spent a lot of time talking about. Now, before we get into the details, I need to mention something I don't usually talk about which is the blurb about the episode that they put in the History Channel's website, and it's the same thing you see on places like your guide, on your Direct TV or what have you. Um, it said, quote, The team is stunned with new scientific evidence that supports the theory that the Knights Templar were involved in the Oak Island mystery, and the big dig uncovers some surprising relics. I have to tell you, when you consider these guys have found things like the Lead Cross in their history, When they say things like we're going to be stunned by new scientific evidence that supports the theory of the Knights Templar, uh, you know, the anticipation for the show was pretty high. But alas, we were, or at least I was, kind of a little let down, unfortunately. So we begin this with Marty Lagina and Charles Barkhouse driving their now familiar black SUVs, they they look like the government going by, right? On their way to the University of New Brunswick for test results on this bail seal. UNB has campuses in St. John, New Brunswick, and in Fredericton. From the images, this looks like Fredericton, but I don't think they ever actually say where they are here, but be that as it may, They've come to meet with Dr. Chris McFarlane, who is a professor of earth sciences. We've seen Chris McFarlane before. He's done some testing in the past. He does this laser ablation stuff that uh, the information from which they can tell where this lead that makes up the seal is mined. I thought they could also tell us how old it might be. We don't get any discussion about age here. So maybe I'm wrong about that. I'm not really sure why that is. Anyway, all these tests tend to get a little confusing (laughs) for a simple podcaster such as myself. Anyway, the results say that this lead in this seal is European in origin and seems pretty likely it is from a French mine to be more exact. Now, remember, there is no testing results that we get here that says when. This lead was mined. Nor is anything said about the design on it, and any follow up on that, and what might what that might possibly mean regarding its origins. No, no talk about the treasury of England or anything like that. So you can understand why the air kind of came out of my proverbial balloon here. When the next Im- image we see is that of the late author Zena Halpern, and this has nothing to do with Miss Halpern. I love I love her book. It's great stuff. But I knew just from her image. That this, these test results, was the new evidence supporting the theory of the Knights Templar involved in Oak Island, right? And that was just very deflating to me because I'm not even going to go into, <laughs> go too far into why this test simply is not evidence of Templar involvement. You don't need me for that, right? We can go to the patrons for that during our discussion. Stephen, the Patreon, had a great line here. He said, quote, I mean, there's Italian marble in my kitchen, but that doesn't mean the Italians were here. <laughs> And that's just one. Brian wrote, uh, quote, an English cloth merchant buys the lead while getting cloth or dye, uses it to seal bales going to the new world. Lead happens to be from one of the dozens of French lead mines. It's very loose. End quote. Now, All of that is true. It's very true. The real disappointing thing here is, boy, what what a letdown that was as far as uh, maybe bringing the Templars back into this. And I don't know why I was expecting something big like, you know, maybe the cross. I didn't think that big, but something at least coming close to that. Well, I do know why. It's because I misread that blurb. Let me let me it's my fault. Let me take my own uh, blame here. The quote unquote scientific evidence part of what that sentence read should have probably been the tip off for me. But be that as it may, uh, like I said, I'm not going to spend too much time on poking holes in the idea that this is somehow evidence of Templar involvement, except to say this. The French were a huge player in the early settlement of Canada. You don't need me to tell you something so obvious as that. If they at least gave me a date of this seal or something about what that design might mean, something that puts it during the Templar era, then that would be one thing, right? But just the bale seal being made from French lead, and we don't even know when this, we're not even told when this mine was in use. I mean, that's just not enough. That's just as flimsy flimsy as it gets. I mean, I've been saying this throughout this podcast and throughout the last podcast, and when they found this, this seal to me is interesting, and it might have a story to tell. But at the risk of repeating myself, uh, it seems just as likely to me that the story it has to tell is that it came from a shipwreck from one of the thousands of French ships that sailed these waters for centuries. Uh, Than from some secret pre-Columbian Templar mission in North America, one that also, you know, may have led to tens of coconut fiber being washed up on Smith's Co- Cove. But I, but I, I don't want to depress myself anymore. Anyway, at the risk of repeating myself again, let me just say this: you can't ignore likely explanations in favor of the fantastical just because the fantastical sounds fantastic. That's not how you solve a mystery. So this might have some great stories to tell. But the Templar one is uh, a pretty big stretch. Anyway, all right, let's take a quick stop over at the swamp before we focus in on the money pit. Alex Lagina and David Fernetti are here to do ground penetrating radar scan on the area of this new stone wharf or stone road or whatever they're calling it this week. It's really cool, though, that this kind of scan can now basically be done by the team at basically any time they want. They don't need to wait for like an expert in GPR to come to the island and do it. Um, From what they said here, that it's this project that they seem to be um, using this GPR to find evidence of this stone road, perhaps to present to the Department of Community, Culture and Heritage, the people who made them stop digging in this little small corner of the swamp um, because they didn't want them destroying possible First Nation artifacts with a huge excavator. So hopefully they can come up with some evidence using this GPR that can help them sort of convince the CCH to allow them to continue digging here in some way, shape or form. That seems to be what we're going after. And again, I'm not going to take debate. I'm not discussing what the narration says in these scenes with regards to this order from the CCH. I won't do it. They can't make me. I have sworn that off. In the end, they do find evidence of the road. And that's really it. I assume in the future, we will see more on this, either this particular scan or this idea. But this scene certainly appeared to me to be just sort of the start of the project. Maybe, you know, Uh, I'm sure we will hear something from Steve Guptill or whoever on more, you know, with more on this in the future. The only thing I'll add is there was some talk about who might have buried, quote unquote, buried this road. And I have to ask, at this point, are we sure that this road was purposely buried? I mean, do we have reason to believe that? From what we've learned do we know that for certain do we know that there's backfill or moved earth over the top of it or or did mother nature just sort of bury it all on her own I'm, I'm just not sure that we know that for sure and that really is an important thing to find out in my mind when it comes to this and this discussion it makes all the difference in the world without a doubt All right, it's time to talk about the work done over at the Money Pit. That's where the bulk of this week's episode took place, and I imagine that will be the case for the remainder of Season 9. A stop here and there to do some testing, maybe uh, check out an artifact or two they found over somewhere else, but most of the actual work we're going to see, I think, from this point on, is going to be these giant caissons, which, if memory serves, we're supposed to see four of them throughout the year, and we saw most of the first one, although not all, Um, That's assuming, of course, one doesn't pull up the Ark of the Covenant before we get to see all four. Speaking of which, I assume this giant hammer grab must have some sort of treasure-sensing device, right? And will know to sort of stop and grab very carefully should it come across, across some priceless religious artifacts, right? Anyway, I digress. This week, the episode begins right where last week's left off as we see the first can, which they named TF1, beginning to be oscillated down to the earth. Amazing stuff, really, watching them do this. Just for some reference, this caisson is up in the C1 area. It's up in sort of the northwestern side of the Money Pit area. Now, before we talk about the work being done here, I have to stop and point out perhaps the weirdest piece of narration I've heard in quite some time on this show. We see this quick shot of Laird Niven with a notebook, and he's sort of watching the work being done, and Clotworthy says something like the only way Laird can help now, the only way Laird can help the team now is by documenting the work being done. And then he blames the quote unquote new government regulations or something like that for this being that all Laird can do for the team now. I have no idea why this was said. I've no idea what the point of this line was. It just sort of came out of nowhere. We could easily have gone without seeing Laird <laughs> with a with a with a with a book and never mentioning it. Uh, You know, I'm not going to get into why it was such a bizarre line. I'm sure you guys already know that and can figure that out. But it was just so strange that they even took the time to bother mentioning such a thing. What what point is that? It was, you know, besides incorrect, just out of the blue and so very weird. Anyway, let's leave that to the side and move on with the dig. I just I I, I got caught on that because I didn't know what they're. Purpose wasn't even bringing that up. Anyway, as the can goes down, this giant hammer grab picks up everything inside the can and then dumps it into a pile. Now, we didn't see this entire process play out here, but it looks like what happens is this dirt goes from the can into the hammer grab to this pile. Gary quickly looks over it, metal detects, eyeballs it, pulls out maybe some wood or whatever he finds in the detector. Then eventually the, all of this stuff goes into a wash plant where it is more cleaned up and then sorted more on that in just a second. Gary is looking at the spoils from, I think they said around 75 feet, which was when they started to find wood, these big timbers, the kind of timbers we've seen throughout Money Pit digs, right? His detector picks up an old nail or some kind of fastener, he calls it. And Gary points out that it's the first such fastener found in this caisson. I don't know why he made a big deal about that, but he did. Um, And it is interesting. Elizabeth on the Patreon discussion commented, quote, how many episodes this season has someone brought up wood? End quote. That's a great question. I, I think I know what you're getting at here, Elizabeth. This show is starting to get a little bit predictable. Um, and I don't remember the last time we saw an episode where there wasn't a piece of wood found. Certainly not in the last couple of years. I really don't. It's been quite some time. Anyway, later we see Rick at said wash plant giving us a good look at that process or well, a small look, but a look about how many people are involved in it and all that kind of stuff. And there's some people there we haven't seen before. It's an incredible piece of machinery. Um, we don't see a lot happen here, but I think that both this scene with Rick at the wash plant and the one we just saw with Gary at the money pit really just serves to sort of set the scene for what's to come, kind of give us a, a reference point for us viewers as to where this team's this work's being done and who might be doing it and what these things could all do just for these next few episodes where I think this kind of stuff's going to be the focus. Now back to the hammer grab at about 83 feet. I think they said the grab apparently starts to hit something hard and is no longer grabbing wood or really anything. Vanessa Lucido, who runs this company and who's sort of the foreman here calls it an anomaly. I think she may have also used the word obstruction that is getting in their way. Now it's kind of murky. What happens next? <laughs> But Vanessa indicates to one of the people who work for her that Marty said they can begin, quote unquote, dropping it to try and remove or move this obstacle or anomaly. Now, I could only assume, although they didn't show this, that this means they're literally going to drop the hammer grab on top of this multi ton piece of steel on top of whatever it is, a sort of a bludgeon here, (laughs) Uh, you know, to try and break up maybe or move whatever is in their way. And again, I assume that if what's in their way is something holding the Ark of the Covenant, that the hammer grab would have some sort of magic sensor on there that would make it go nice and easy. Right. I mean, God, I hope so. Anyway, as a result of this dropping it method, they pull up a big boulder with a heavy, obviously drilled hole into it. Uh, The hole coming from likely the sonic drilling done, presumably by the Laginas earlier this year. And even they say that, right? Tom on the Patreon made a hilarious observation. He said, quote, that was a kettleball that the Templars used to keep in shape. <laughs> now, if that were true, Tom, then this would have been really great Templar evidence. I have to admit though, my friend, it did look like that. At first I thought it might be uh, like an anchor stone or maybe something used as a counterweight, although the hole looked very, very big for that kind of stuff. Um, But no, it was just a regular old boulder that they happened to drill a hole through a few weeks back. The boulder was apparently the obstruction that was keeping the hammer grab from finding everything. So after they get it out of their way, the hammer grab starts to bring up more and more wood. Soon we get the source of the pun that is in this episode title. As within one of these piles of spoils, they find a boot, a rubber boot to be specific, and that really makes a huge difference. The fact that it's made of rubber, because that means this head must be from a past searcher and most likely a searcher during the 20th century. More on that in just a second. Now, I have to say, at this point, I was once again feeling more than a little deflated. I mean, we have found evidence of pieces of boots before. And I thought when they said boot in the ground that maybe they pulled up more of that kind of stuff, which is really fascinating stuff. But the deflating thing is because this boot is modern, what it tells me is that all of this wood and everything else that they think they might have found, they might be on over here. Everything that pointed them in the direction of dropping a can here could now all be considered just searcher in origin. Doug Kroll admits later that this find was pretty disappointing for the team. Now, a few minutes later, Doug tells the guys that there are there is a maker's mark on the boot and he kind of starts to try to change the narrative to make it a little less disappointing. It says the boot was made by the Kaufman Company. Laird and Doug looked it up and it seems this company made just such a boot during the first decade of the 20th century. He specifically said something like 1908 and 1909, causing Doug to conclude that this boot must have come from one of the workers involved with a group called the Old Gold Salvage and Wrecking Company. This was a short-lived treasure hunting group on Oak Island that was made most famous for having a young Franklin Delano Roosevelt as one of their investors and enthusiasts. This was when Roosevelt was in his 20s before he ever ran for office when he was like a law clerk or something like that. But there are letters, uh, you know. Roosevelt remained interested in the uh, Oak Island treasure hunt really for the rest of his life, and there are letters he wrote to his friends who were also involved in the Old Gold Salvage and Wrecking Company many years after they they left the island, and even during his presidency, if I'm not mistaken. So this was something that he was he was keen on for sure. Now the photo of FDR on Oak Island is undoubtedly one of the most famous images of all time and is often used to lend sort of an air of legitimacy to the treasure hunt, right? I mean, after all, FDR even thought there was a treasure, that kind of thing. But the photo can be a bit misleading, if I'm honest. It's not like FDR was there for years with a shovel and a shaft 100 feet underground. He was just sort of an investor. Remember, he was incredibly rich. So was all his whole family was. And as far as we know, FDR only visited the island for a couple of days during this time frame, but his interest in Oak Island was, as I mentioned, very, very real. Remember, Roosevelt spent many summers during his youth and also in his adulthood at the Delano Summer Cottage on Campobello Island, which is in the Bay of Fundy. It's right on the coastal border between Maine and New Brunswick. It's literally just across the bay from Nova Scotia, but don't get me wrong, This is a huge bay, (laughs) so it's not like it's close, right? But it's certainly close enough, though, to explain a young Franklin's interest in this treasure and his knowledge of this mystery. Others would say his interest stems from being a Freemason. Uh, James McQuiston would argue, likely, that it would come from his family's connection to the Mayflower, of which there is a concrete and very tangible connection. I mean, if I recall correctly, there are even stories of Young, young Franklin uh, searching for Captain Kidd's treasure on some other island up there when he was a kid. But i, I got to be totally honest here. My memory is a bit sketchy on that one. It's been a while since I read an FDR biography, but I do have that in my head. Either way, finding something here in these spoils that connects to FDR and his time here is certainly very, very cool. And a great reminder of this fascinating chapter of Oak Island history. But Billy Gerhardt is not wrong by any means when he points out here that Roosevelt and his old gold salvage and wrecking company didn't find anything. Now, again, as I said before, Doug tries to temper the disappointment by saying these guys thought they were near the money pit. And therefore, maybe this caisson is also right by the money pit. And that's not wrong. And then there's also the fact that they were indeed, like so many before them, foiled by water and flooding and Maybe they just never made it all the way down to whatever was down there. As far as I know, though, they did get down close to 150 feet. So we have much further to go here before we can call this first case on a failure. But I have to tell you, this was not a great development in my mind by any means. I mean, I love the history. I love taking time to talk about these little chapters in Oak Island's past. And FDRs is a fascinating chapter. But I have to agree with... Well, Billy, this really does feel like bad news for the team. And it does feel like sort of a death nail for TF1. Uh, It does feel like this idea of C1 being the untouched place where there's a vault. I mean, remember, Seismic Data was telling us there was a vault here or an opening here. So uh, is that really what we're seeing? Or is what we're seeing just a, a result of the work done all those years ago? by FDR and his old gold salvage and wrecking company. Probably my favorite name of any searcher company ever come to Oak Island. <laughs> but just so we don't end things here on a downer, because I, I do feel like I'm, I'm being a bit of a downer about this entire episode, even though I was absolutely gripped by it. I just want to read um, to you what our patron Dan wrote in the chat at the end of the episode, and, and, and I think this really says it for me. He said, quote, I think you actually have to be there to truly appreciate the magnitude and scale of what they are doing. Hats off to the Laginas, end quote. Absolutely, Dan. We forget about that in the midst of these conversations, in the midst of these criticisms, and trying to cut through this, but man, oh man, this operation is nothing short of absolutely breathtaking. Go back, guys, and watch the first episode, the first season again Man, oh, man, we got to hand it to these guys. They have come a very long way. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. I want to just remind you guys, we want to do sort of a listener comments uh, questions, predictions show, sort of a mid season, uh, report card show here next week. There is no new episode of the curse of Oak Island. Um, so we're not going to talk about the show, but we, I want to continue to talk about the history and everything that we have seen in this first season. So get all that stuff in digging Oak Island at gmail.com patrons. You can do that on the Patreon. Um, just go there and use your posts or your messages. You can send them directly to me. I'll put a post about this too. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I don't watch Twitter very often, Facebook more so, but the way those messages and things work is a little less, um, uh, you know, I could easily miss those, but you can certainly try there. Just go to your search bar, put in at dig in Oak Island, but the best way to do it is through email. Uh, shameless plug time, as I always say this week uh, at this point in the show. Don't forget, every Wednesday afternoon, 2 to 5 p.m., tune in to WDVR-FM. You can find me hosting and DJing a radio show called The Bourbon Street Bistro from 2 to 4 p.m., play the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., I host another show called Island Vibes, where we play music with sort of a tropical feel. If you're in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, you can listen on 89.7 FM, or you can always just turn tune in online. It's on the TuneIn app and all that stuff. It's also at wdvr fm.org. Also, if you're enjoying the, um, the show here, the little podcast, don't forget to become a patron. If you so desire, you can, uh, if you think the show's worth five bucks a month, you head over to patreon.com slash Island learn more. And as we mentioned before, again, uh, if, if you want to help out the show in another way, you can really do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the donations and all the kind words that you guys have for the show. It really makes doing all this, um, you know, worth it in the end. And again, questions, comments, just send them directly to me, digginoakisland at gmail.com. I want to make one last plug here if you guys are still listening. Uh, I do another show, another podcast. It's not a regular podcast. It's called Sit Downs and Sessions the next the the most recent two podcasts are a two-part interview with a guy named Bill burns anybody involved in the UFO business will know exactly who Bill burns is he's an author a publisher he's a college professor all that kind of stuff we uh he's he was the producer of an old history channel show called ufo hunters which was very popular he's been on ancient aliens he does all of that stuff he is a fascinating brilliant guy whether you agree with his takes or not on stuff he really is last week we released a podcast where we were talking about sort of history and politics and pandemics too. It's been the history and politics of pandemics and this week, we're going to release one more about UFOs. So just go to uh, Apple Podcasts, put in sit-downs and sessions anywhere you get your shows. It should be on all the platforms. If you're having a hard time with that, uh, sit sessions at podbean.com, and you can find it there. It, it really was a fascinating interview, regardless of what you think of uh, of his takes on stuff. He's a brilliant guy, and it was absolutely incredible. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.